Plantation SDA Church presents The Bible Unmasked. Read your Bible daily and join us every Sunday at 7.30pm for our weekly discussion. From Genesis all the way through to Revelation, let's read the entire Bible in 2021 with The Bible Unmasked. Welcome to the 37th episode of Bible Unmasked. For those of you who have joined us for the first time tonight, the Bible Unmasked is Plantation Seventh-day Adventist Church's study of the Bible through one entire year. It is aired every Sunday night at 7.30 on YouTube and PlantationSDA.tv. As we said again, the goal is to read the entire Bible during 2021, and you can find our reading plan or hear about the reading plan that is shared every single Sabbath during our announcement time on YouTube and social media. So we invite you, when you hear what the reading schedule is, we invite you to invite your family, friends, and co-workers to text their questions in advance to 954-388-8780. Again, that number is 954-388-8780. And we, as the pastors, we will attempt to address your questions weekly. We would also like to invite you to subscribe to Plantation SD Church's YouTube channel to be automatically notified of future episodes or any other live stream events. Tonight is my first time to host Pastor Gervon Marsh, and it is a privilege to host with him tonight. Pastor Marsh, may you please open us up in prayer. Sure. Thank you, Pastor Hernandez. It's a pleasure to be here with you. And let's pray. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Your word is still life. Your word is still light. And your word is still relevant and right for us, even in these days. And we pray that you will bless our time together and through your spirit enlighten our hearts. And may we not only understand but give us a willingness to do your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Last week's reading was from Ezekiel 18 to 35. Pastor Marsh, can you briefly remind us what we covered last week? Ezekiel 18 to 35 um, looked at uh, specifically... Um, Issues pertaining to uh, judgment of some countries and um, also issues pertaining to the restoration of Jerusalem. Excellent. This week's reading is Ezekiel 35 to Daniel 6. And can you just provide a very brief overview of what we will be covering this week? So chapters 37 through 48 of Ezekiel um starts with dry bones talking about dry bones and ends with issues pertaining to the restoration of the temple and of the country or the nation of israel so we will delve in depth in that and then i think we're going to daniel as well if i'm not mistaken yes to daniel six daniel six so daniel six form one to six forms the first portion of that book which are primarily narratives some beautiful stories 
that teach us some valuable spiritual lessons. Beautiful. All right. We are going to dive right into Ezekiel 37. My apologies. I know I said Ezekiel 35. I read a typo. Ezekiel 37, this chapter, for this chapter, the question is, Pastor Marsh, what does the Valley of Dry Bones represent? It's a beautiful question. What does the Valley of Dry Bones represent? Um, you know, I, 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 it's interesting that this chapter, songs have been made of it, you know. People think about bones and bones, them dry bones. My little daughter loves singing it. I'm talking about the hip bone connected to whatever bone. But um, songs have been made of it just because of the actual um, uh, description given in the book of Ezekiel about this, where there's a valley of bones. Now picture this, in those days, whenever they had war and people were slaughtered, they really didn't have a mechanism to just dispose of all of those bodies, at least how we could and would do it today. So oftentimes after they had literally um, stripped the bodies of the clothing, because that was a prize of war or the booty from war, these bodies would leave there, the vultures would hover over, decay would set in, and then there would just be dry bones, literally bones all over. So that's what happened um, where Ezekiel saw this dream, a valley of dry bones. The question is, what does that represent? Because in the prophecy, we see the bones literally coming together, creating the skeleton, and eventually they do live, you know? But what does it represent? If you look at the book of Ezekiel, the overarching themes have to do with judgment and restoration and judgment and restoration in the context of the Day of Atonement. So this is actually a depiction of the restoration that God envisions for his people. And that is um, for, for Judah or Israel. Um, God was saying that, can these dry bones live? Anyone would say no. But because of the power that he possesses, he can literally restore even that which was dead. God can bring back the dead to life. And if he can do that, which I believe amounts to the hardest thing anyone can ever do, then what would it take for him to restore a country that is mm. represented by these dry bones? So it's really referring to the restoration of um, Israel specifically Judah, because by this time, referencing specifically the, the, the tribes that were left, which are really Judah and Benjamin. Wow, excellent. Thank you for that. We move on to chapters is 40 and 40 through 48 in Ezekiel. And the question is this, actually, it's a three, fourfold question, threefold mm. question. All right, so we begin. These chapters in Ezekiel 40 to 48 provide a detailed description of the temple. Mm -hmm. Through this detailed description, are these details included in the Bible just for informational purposes or do they have any particular meaning and significance? I'll let you answer that one before I move on. <laughs> All right. Well, um, 
You know, interestingly enough, I just finished reading the book of Ezekiel. And um, every time I read a book of the Bible or a chapter of the Bible and do so prayerfully, you know, something always jumps out at me because I had that similar question. What is the purpose of this, um, those chapters? Again, we go back to the context. The book of Ezekiel is premised on the issue of restoration and judgment, but it's premised on these issues in the context of the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement was literally Day of Judgment. So mm-hmm. these last chapters form a very significant portion of the book. And this was actually a very long vision that Ezekiel received, which describes the um, a temple. It describes also um, the division of the land. It describes the priesthood and all of these things. So now regarding your question about the details, are they there for informational purposes or do they serve any particular meaning and significance? We must not only understand then the purpose of the book or the the primary issues of the book, which are, again, the issues of judgment and restoration, restoration in the context of the Day of Atonement, but the actual literal context in which Ezekiel wrote. Ezekiel wrote this while being a part of the exile in Babylon. And those who had gone into Babylon had hope that they were going to be restored. And... Isaiah, or rather Jeremiah, had actually prophesied that they would spend 70 years and then they will be restored. Now, we believe that there, well, back up, there are actually three ways you could look at this. Some say it's literal, some say it's futuristic, some say it's allegorical. Literal means that it's going to be fulfilled to the T. The futuristic means that sometime in the future, because it hasn't happened, it didn't happen in the days of Ezekiel or after, and it's yet to happen. So it must be sometime in the distant future. And then some say it's allegorical. So it's an allegory. So you can't literally interpret everything Mm -hmm. um, literally, basically. Now, um, we believe uh, somewhat differently. And I think we, we talked about this when we looked at the study of Isaiah, where we talk about the fact that the prophecies of the Old Testament, specifically the major prophets and all the other prophets, they are considered conditional prophecies. So in other words, if Israel did this, God would do this. Right. And this, I believe, is applicable to these chapters, where the description of the temple, which was somewhat different in terms of its measurements, its layout, and all that was said from the temple that was before, um, all of that, if Israel had complied with God's conditions, there's a strong possibility that that could have been fulfilled. Mm -hmm. But because they didn't do that, it did not happen. So is it just there for information? Is there any significance? It's not only there for information, but there's a significance. It shows us that if we comply with God's will, there are benefits we can receive. But when we fail to comply with God's will, it's almost certain that we will not receive those benefits. I strongly believe that if Israel had complied with the conditions as God had outlined them, things would have been different. And maybe there, this temple as described could have actually been built and all that was contained or in the vision or uh, surrounded the development of the temple in the vision possibly could have happened if they had complied with God's will for their lives. Okay, so 
piggybacking on that question about the details and significance, then what is the significance of the rebuilding of the temple? Well, for the Jews then, that was very significant because unlike our society where in many respects, especially in Christianity, um, or our Christian experience is an addendum, it's just an attachment. So we do it on the weekend, whether you go to church on Saturday or Sunday, but during the week you have nothing to do with it. For the Jews back then, and even to, in some respects today, the temple, their lives literally revolve around the temple. Mm -hmm. Without a temple, you, you almost have no identity, as it were. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, they have synagogues, but the temple, as is described here, is what forms the center of their lives. Because remember now, in Exodus, God said, let them build me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Yes. That's where the very Shekinah glory once dwelt. So when the temple is rebuilt, it means that the very presence of God, the very symbol that signifies the presence of God is in our midst. So if it's not rebuilt, it's not there. Even to today, that's one of the issues that concerns the nation of Israel because um, Zionists believe that at some point in time, they will be able to rebuild a temple and they'll have sacrifices and all of these things there again, which means that, you know, God's presence is with them and they're able to practice their cultic um, practices and all these things. So the rebuilding of the temple signifies that the very presence of God for them has been to some extent restored, restored. Mm. but that never happened and it still hasn't happened to today. So rebuilding the temple was very significant for them. Would you say that the temple described here would be the earthly temple or is it a representation of the heavenly temple? Well, I guess in a sense, it is a representation of the heavenly temple because the Bible tells us in Hebrews that God gave Moses a blueprint or a pattern of the greater temple that is in heaven. But this one that has been described refers to something that would actually be the an earthly temple had it been built. Nice. Okay. Let's move to chapter 44. And we read and we know that chapter 44 talks about the priesthood being restored. Mm -hmm. In this chapter, who is the priest being referred to? Or who is oh, the priest that is being referred to? Well, um, so the chapter actually talks about the Levites, the Levites. And if you read it, you'll notice that it describes two sets you had levites who went astray and encouraged the people to go astray and actually led the people astray and then you had levites who did not go astray i think verse 15 there about talks about um the sons of zodak who kept my charge so it's referring to those to whom the responsibility of this for the sanctuary was given specifically the levites you had some that were willing to comply with God's will, and you had some that went contrary to God's will. So if the temple were restored as it should be or described there, there would also be a restoration of the priesthood. And it was referenced specifically to those who did not turn away from God. And those are the sons of Zodak. Now, I, we're not doing this just for 
information. So I think there's an application relevant here, um, which is we have to be mindful that pastors or priests, because in this case, the Bible says we're all a priesthood of believers. So in our time, if we're going to make an application, we have to understand that there are pastors who can lead people astray. And that is true for our church, as it is true for other denominations. Mm -hmm. um, but there are also pastors who understand God's will and are willing to do it and encourage people to do the same. So for anyone who's listening, the question is, is your pastor leading you astray or are they leading you the right way? And that's something you have to be mindful of. And how do you know that? You and I need to know the word of God for ourselves. We have mm -hmm. to study it and understand it. And the spirit will lead us into truth. And when we, we, we know the word, we will, understand, we will know the genuine. So if we see any counterfeit, even from a man of God, mm. we have to be certain that we are willing to comply with God's will. Because there are pastors who can lead astray while there are those who will lead people the right way. Ooh, that's deep. All right. Ezekiel 45. This chapter discusses the restoration of Israel. This restoration, is it referring to Israel as we know it? <laughs> Interesting question. Interesting question, because there are some who possibly would want to apply it like that. But think about it. Israel as we know it now really is not restored as mm -hmm. the chapter describes, because if you have ever been to um, Israel, you'll quickly realize that it's one of the most divided um, physical territory on earth. That's right. um, the actual boundaries are smaller than the original ones that the tribes, the 12 tribes occupied. Also, um, the, 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 the West Bank and other places are occupied by um, Palestinians. Um, as opposed to Jew, and there's fighting about um, the Golan Heights and many other places. So this text really is not describing um, Israel or its restoration as we know it right now. The restoration is describing there is what would have happened if Israel had complied with God's will for their lives. That's exactly what it's describing there, yeah. Okay, there's another question that's attached to this. Does mm -hmm. Israel remain a restored nation or has its status changed? And if its status has changed, will it be restored again? <laughs> well, again, uh, I guess it depends on who you ask. It depends on who you ask. Because of the conditional nature of the prophecies of Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah, we believe that failure to comply with God's will mm -hmm. has resulted in them not being restored as they would have had they complied with God's will for their lives. So um, they, they are still, I, I believe, in a sense, God's people. We're not saying they're not. And um, uh, uh, you have to carefully understand what that means. But there's some who teach that Israel will ultimately be restored. Um, and this comes from the idea of dispensationalism, where they're saying 
that the Christians are going to be taken up and there's going to be a seven-year period where Israel will, will, will basically reign and all sorts of some, some issues. And when you study further, Daniel chapter 9, we can address that because they take that one week of Daniel's prophecy and mm-hmm. create this idea. But no, it's not referring to Israel's status now. And is Israel in the future going to occupy that place where they ultimately have total control? Not according to the Bible, no. Okay. In previous chapters, the festival celebrations have been discussed. Can mm-hmm. you can you remind us why we are no longer required to celebrate the festivals? All right, all right. Um, I like that question. And these festivals, there are quite a few of them. Um, so, for example, you have the Feast of Tabernacle, you have the Passover, you have Pentecost, you have the Day of Atonement, you have all the other ceremonies and feasts that are connected with the actual tem- temple service. Um, they're not celebrated anymore. And why? For good reason. For good reason. I want to share with you what the Bible actually says. Um And let's listen carefully to this. I want to read this for you. In Hebrews chapter 10, the Bible makes this clear. Um, Let me see if I can find it here. Um, It says, for the law, Hebrews 10 verse 1, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered. Whoever wrote the book of Hebrew, and some claim it's not Paul, we believe it's Paul. Paul says the reason they've ceased to be offered is because they were literally a shadow of something better to come. And Mm -hmm. what were they a shadow of? They were a shadow, basically, and you can read the rest of the chapter in Hebrews 10. These were all pointing to the Messiah, Jesus, and what he would accomplish for us. For example, look at Passover. Who is the ultimate Passover lamb? Paul tells us in Corinthians that Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb. Um, look at, for example, uh, uh, the, 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 um, what's the other one we're talking about now? The Feast of Lights, the, the, the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles, they would come and celebrate this in booths in Jerusalem, signifying their travel through the, the desert. They would mm-hmm. light lights and have this Feast of Lights and all of these things. What that represented? It represented the pillar of fire that followed them by night. Who was that pillar of fire? It was Jesus. Mm-hmm. The Bible supports that. So all of these things were a shadow of something better. Now, if you have something better, when we say shadow, It's simply a representation of something better. Now, I have right here, you can't see it, but I'm looking at it on top of my shelf there. I have a replica of a car that I love. It's a Subaru Impreza. I mean, one, and I I, I took a picture of it once against a certain background and people were raving, man, we love your car. They didn't realize it was a toy car, but because of how it was taken, that is a representation of a car I want. Will Mm -hmm. my wife allow me to buy it? No. Um, Pray for me. I hope she does. But (laughs) it's a representation of something better. And if I get the better, hallelujah, amen. Amen. These were all shadows or representation of something better. Now that we've had better in Jesus, we don't need these sacrifices 
anymore. We don't need these feasts anymore because what they represented, Jesus has accomplished for us. And so he is, for example, our Passover. We don't need to celebrate the Passover anymore. And the list goes on and on of all the things that he represents. And we don't need to celebrate those no more because Jesus is better than all of these things. Amen. Amen. All right. Bringing us to Ezekiel 47 verse 1. This is being taken from the New International Version. Version. Mm -hmm. The man brought me back to the entrance to the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The Mm -hmm. water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. So now the question is, what does the water coming out from under the threshold of the temple represent in this chapter? It's a very interesting question, and I'm not going to even profess that I fully understand this, but let me let me put it this way. This is a vision that Ezekiel had. Um, and water coming from the threshold of the temple. Um, if this were literal, you wonder where would this water come from? Would it be a miraculous source or would some streams from somewhere just feed through it or whatever the case is? I, I really don't know. I really don't know because based on where the temple would be, you're, you, you, you have to wonder where would this source of water come from? What I think this represents um, is the fact that had Israel complied with God's will, there would have been such a level of prosperity that they would have experienced that would just be, you know, um, better than anything that they had ever had. Chances Mm. are it could also be literal. And that would be amazing if water is literally coming out of the temple. temple, It would be a source of life. And here's what we can also say. Here's what we can also say. And I, I, again, I'm not saying that this is final or that I know that this is how it ultimately is. But one of the things that we notice about the book of Ezekiel, in many respects, it resembles and pictures the book of Revelation. Mm -hmm. And in the book of Revelation, we know that there's a river of life that flows out of the temple of God. Yes. Could it Uh be that this was a, a, a prophetic... Uh, a vision of the temple of God in heaven. It may be, but I kind I want to suggest that whatever was not fulfilled here on earth, um, with the, the with Israel back then, ultimately it will be fulfilled with God's people when the temple is brought to this earth and 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 this earth is restored. That may just very well be what it is because the Bible tells us that heaven is going to the heaven is the city of jerusalem is going to come down here and it tells us that there's a river of life that flows out of the city and if that is here on earth then it may just be well that what wasn't fulfilled then will ultimately be fulfilled when this earth is restored to its former glory with the city of god present on this earth excellent ezekiel 47 9 says Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. So here we go with water again. Mm -hmm. 
there will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. The question mm. is, should we understand this passage and others like it from the book of Ezekiel literally mm, or prophetically? Well, clearly it was never fulfilled literally. And as we just discussed and described, um, what may not have happened here literally ultimately will happen when earth is restored and Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem comes to earth. Um, this water has life giving force based on what the text is suggesting. Mm -hmm. And the water, of course, you and I know is life, but right. we also know that the river in heaven is referred to as a river of life. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't fulfilled literally, but there's a great possibility that there's a prophetic, uh, a prophetic application here that is looking forward to what will ultimately happen when this earth is restored to its former glory, its first glory, and the city of God dwells on this earth. Nice. Okay. Ezekiel 48 says, oh, as we read the chapter of Ezekiel, we look at the tribes that are discussed. And so in this chapter, are the tribes discussed here, one, still in existence, and two, what happened to the portion of the tribe, the portion that got assigned to each tribe? All right. Um, so are the tribes still in existence? Mm -hmm. um, no, not as we... we uh, know them from bible they are not in 722 bc the northern kingdom was destroyed and the assyrians literally scattered them all over and eventually those people became known as the samaritans and they're mm -hmm. considered half breed or mixed breed they're actually still samaritans who exist today and um in some respects they they actually go through sacrifices and all of that but the southern kingdom was made up primarily of Judah and Benjamin. Now, it wasn't exclusively Judah and Benjamin, because as you read the Old Testament, you'll realize that people um, from other tribes who were not in agreement with the idolatrous ways of the other people, some of them moved into Jerusalem. And you had Levites, for example, were also there. So... Um, while the northern tribe was destroyed, eventually the southern tribe was put into exile, and then they came back. And uh, the, the, the tribe of Judah specifically um, is what, and Benjamin, and I think there might have been some Levites. Yes, there were, because they came out of exile. But the tribes, as described there, are not the ones we know today. In reality, when Ezekiel even prophesied this, the ten tribes had been gone. So the question is, if God is going to restore them, are these the literal tribes? Hmm. One of the things, again, I would draw your attention to is the fact that Ezekiel, to a great degree, resembles the book of Revelation in many respects. In Revelation, the 12 tribes are mentioned there again. But we know that the 12 tribes do not exist literally as they did before mm -hmm. the, the, egg, before the destruction of the northern tribe and the exile of the 
the, of Judah and Benjamin and, and the others. So um, I can't tell you that I know exactly how this would have been because as you read the chapters, it literally tells you how the land would be divided. Mm -hmm. And um, as I was studying this a few weeks ago, when you look at the description of how the boundaries are, are allocated in right. comparison to what it was before when Moses and Joshua told them to allocate the land, it's totally different. It's totally different. So we know, um, so again, um, do I know exactly if it's representing those 12 tribes as they are? Maybe, I don't know, because as I said, there's some people from the 10 tribes who defected to Judah. So what if they decided that their families were going to be, so I don't know. Um, but we do know it really cannot represent those tribes as they existed. And the portion assigned to them, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's not there anymore. It's not there anymore. Um, they, they refer to them as a lost tribe of Israel. So I don't know how they would find them to restore it like it was. I'm sorry if I, I, I haven't provided adequate information on that one. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. As theologians, we can't even suggest that we know everything. Mm -hmm. We're still learning. But we can safely say that the tribes don't exist as they did. So what exactly did Ezekiel mean? I don't fully understand. But it seems to suggest that there would be some restoration and it would represent, it would be represented based on the different tribes. I'm going to throw in a question of my own now. You mentioned that Samaritans are still in existence. I didn't know that. So my question, if you happen to know, if they're still in existence, are they still referred or, or treated the same as they were back then? Or have they modernized in their relations with everyone? I don't get the impression that they are um, treated differently. And I don't know that they're called dogs or anything like that. But there's a clear distinction based on their um, practices and the way they do things and their beliefs. Um, but I really don't know much about their interaction with, with Jews and others. But they're not a very large group. They're not a very large group. And when I was in college, we went to Israel on a study tour and we encountered them somewhat. And also wow. one of our professors was telling us that in her one of her trips to Israel, she went to one of the places where they offered sacrifice. They, they actually wow. And she said it was a very gut-wrenching and uh, a stomach-turning experience. And I don't think we understand how, how the implication of that, because we hear about these sacrifices and we think it's a beautiful experience. No, you're killing an animal. You're ripping out its guts and all of these things and all these things. It was hard work. It was bloody work. There was blood mm -hmm. all over. And it never, the smell wasn't even the best, mm -hmm. you know. Um, have you ever burned fat or, or mm -hmm. an animal carcass? So, yes. yeah, it, 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 it was a very gut-wrenching experience for her, according to her. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for that. We now come to the book of Daniel. And the question is, the book of Daniel is often talked about in the Seventh-day Adventist church. Mm -hmm. And... As we take a deeper look at it in the upcoming weeks, can you summarize the? There you go, Pastor. Can you summarize the prophecy of Daniel in a nutshell? Well, the prophecies of Daniel, in a nutshell, speaks to the fact that God is in control 
of present circumstance. It, uh, God is in control in spite of present circumstances. And I remember that because I preached that the other day. <laughs> when you look at the book of Daniel, it literally begins by saying, let me see if I can find this. I want to show you this. This is amazing. Um, and I don't think, I don't think we, we, sometimes we run through the Bible, not really gathering what it's saying, but we need to li listen to this. It says in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And listen to verse two. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands, that is Nebuchadnezzar's hands, mm. with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house mm. of his God. Notice what the text says. The text literally says that God gave, gave the yes. king of Judah into the hands of the king of Babylon, along with vessels and articles from the temple. And what did he do? He brought it to the house of his God, into the house of his God. It said it twice. So it's emphasized. Mm -hmm. The idea behind that is this. The political scene of earth was changing where Babylon was now the force to be reckoned with. But even though they were forced to be reckoned with, the only reason that they defeated Israel was because God gave it to them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so if God didn't want to give it to him, he couldn't get it. <laughs> you get what I'm saying? So it That's wasn't right. Nebuchadnezzar and all his might and power that did anything. It was God who literally gave it to him. And the That's text right. says that Nebuchadnezzar, having besieged and taken the city, took the vessels to the house of his gods. What does that suggest? In those days, Battles were a religious experience mm -hmm. in the sense that if I defeated you, then it means that my God was stronger than your yes. God. Yes. Mm -hmm. So when he brings it to the house of his God, it's in honor of his God for what his God did for him. So Nebuchadnezzar is carrying on as if though his God did this, but he doesn't even know that it is God, the God of who allowed God, it. who allowed it. Yes. So that gives us hope because... Look at what is happening in our world with all the different political moves, all mm. the different crises and all of these nice. things. Who's in control? <laughs> Who's in control? Is it the pandemic? Right. Is it the politicians? It's God. It is God who is still in control. It is God who is still in control. And that's the idea behind the book of um, Daniel. So with all that's happening in our world, politically and otherwise, God is still in control. Amen. Daniel 1.8 states, But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. The question is, in what way would Daniel defile himself? So if he ate the food and drank the wine, he would have defiled himself. Why is that so? That is so because clearly the idea of defilement brings on some religious um, connotation. Now, we don't know specifically what about the food um, and, or maybe it was offered to idols or something or possibly unclean. But this text didn't literally state that. But if we know anything about the Jews, we know that, for example, there are foods that are unclean. Mm -hmm. We know that they won't eat anything that is offered to idols. We also understand that fermentation is considered a, um, a, a, a corrupting process 
for Jews. Mm -hmm. um, so the wine, if it's fermented, clearly uh, you yes. wouldn't drink it because fermentation, fermentation represents corruption. And the food, possibly unclean, offered to idols, whatever the case is, would not be acceptable to him. So the idea is this. Um, Daniel understood that even in his diet, he had a responsibility to God. There mm -hmm. are foods that defile. Mm -hmm. And um, anything, whether food or drink that defiles, like Daniel, we should stay away from this. The Bible mm -hmm. makes that abundantly clear. Leviticus 11, for example, talk about unclean foods. Um, Proverbs 20, verse 1, talks about the fact that wine is a mocker. Even in Ezekiel, I think chapter 30, is it what chapter that talk about the Levites? Talks about the fact that they shouldn't even drink wine. So these are some of the things that are evident. That's, that's basically what it's alluding to when he talks about the fact that he would not defile himself. Something was unclean about the food and drink that would defile him, so he was not going to take it. I find it interesting when we talk about Daniel and, and also his friends and how we think about what happened when they came in. They, they were stripped of everything. They were stripped of their names they were, they were made to wear different clothing, basically assimilate every single part of their lives. And so just for this, one would think that, well, changing your diet. What's a big deal? It's not a big deal, right? But even down to the nth degree, Daniel remained completely faithful. To and there's a very powerful point you're making right here, because get this, as you talk about it, Whenever kings went to war and they captured um, nations, it was highly unlikely that they would have the armed forces to manage yes. all that they'd captured. So they, whoever they captured and noticed, they took the creme de la creme, the, 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 mm -hmm. the royal royalty of the nation, the best. And what right. they would do was literally re-educate them yes. and indoctrinate them and then send them back to mm -hmm. rule on their behalf. Right. And that was a way. So if, for example, my child was taken to Babylon and then becomes this great official in Babylon and comes back and rule one as ruling over us um, uh, uh, under the, the leadership of Nebuchadnezzar, what are the, the, the chances that I'm going to rebel, you know? Right, they, they had right. a re-education process. But of all the things that could have been identified, of all the things that Daniel decided not to do, why food? Mm -hmm. And there's a reason for that. You see, of all the senses, taste is the king of the senses. People don't realize it. Listen, That's you can right. have the biggest house. You can have the most money. Whatever it is, if you don't eat, what's going to happen to you? That's You're right. You're going to die. You're going to die. Because mm -hmm. taste is the king of the senses. And we must therefore eat, not only eat, but we must eat good food because it is your food that makes your blood. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if you're not eating good food, you're not making good blood. That's right. <laughs> and Daniel wanted to make good blood, basically, because it's your food that makes your blood. If you don't eat, you're going to die. And blood is a life force. So food right. makes your blood. And of all the things, Daniel understood, therefore, that taste was the king of the senses. The devil knew that, which is why he tempted Adam and Eve with food. Yes. Wow. Yes. He, so that's how he tempted. overcome yes. in that respect, I promise you, we'll overcome in many other respects. And, and then this brings us to that. That's also why the very first thing that he's hit Jesus with in his temptation in the wilderness 
Yep. Yep. Amazing. All right. No, no, sorry. Can I can I say this? If I were Jesus, you know, and the devil comes to me <laughs> telling me to make bread, I'm gonna like make bread. Dude, I'm gonna make croissants, I'm gonna make bagels, <laughs> I'm gonna make, I'm like, I can make anything. But Jesus, <laughs> Jesus knew he didn't have to prove anything to anyone. Because right. ultimately, had he done that, he would have failed in the very respect that Adam failed. Diet. Mm-hmm. Okay. Daniel 1.12 states, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Is this verse suggesting that we should rely on a plant-based diet and only eat vegetables? <laughs> All right, that's a good question. I'll put it this way. You're going to make enemies I, here? No, I'm just joking. I think the text is primarily descriptive. So it's describing to us what Daniel and his friends requested and what they did. But it is also prescriptive because if after 10 days they were fat and fair and their minds were sharper, is there something we can learn? Mm. I'll tell you this. I'll tell you this. I'll give you an illustration. When I was in college, I was training for triathlon mm -hmm. and I came across a diet where all I did was primarily, I just did carbs and vegetables, but I carb load for energy. And I was very careful with the carbs that I did, but everything else was fruits and vegetables. I, I, did, I, I actually didn't lose weight, but I became so toned. People were wondering what was wrong with me. They're like, dude, what happened to you? But when I went on the scale, I hadn't really lost much. But I had a burst of energy that I never had before. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it was all primarily because of each morning I got up, I would do a kale smoothie with some other vegetables and all of that. And that was my primary diet. But whenever I'm going cycling, I would carb load, just have some spaghetti or something the night before just to get that energy. But the primary thing was fruits and vegetables. And I kid you not, I had some burst of energy because as a triathlete, you have to be able to find that energy when you need it because you, uh, what does it do? You swim, then you cycle, then you run, right? Um, mm -hmm. and, and you have to find that. And I proved that, you know, it works. And many others have proved. People have even designed what they call the Daniel diet. The point is, it is descriptive, but it is also prescriptive. There are benefits that comes from eating a plant-based diet, significant benefits. Besides, one pastor puts it this way. I like how he says it. We came from the earth. Mm. We must therefore eat things that come from the earth. All the things that are processed and all of these things are not the best things. Mm -hmm. The meat we eat, for example, if you eat um, beef, what does a cow eat? <laughs> Grass. Grass. Well, at least if they're um, organic cows. I <laughs> Really good grass. But they go back to the earth and we came from the earth. The original diet consisted of things that came from the earth. We can't fail if we utilize that diet. Excellent. By the way, by the way, I always tease um, 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 my dear wife and tell her, listen, love, we, we won't be able to eat any fish in heaven. Um, so you can't kill no fish up there. The fish in the sea of life or the river of life, you can't kill them. So we, we should start rehearsing down here for what we're going to do up there. Actually, I don't know what we're going to eat in heaven, but I'm sure it's not going to be meat. Or maybe it'll be angels food. I don't know. Sorry. They'll be there for decorative purposes. You know, the salmon going down, going down the sea. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
All right, Daniel 2, 24 to 49. Daniel interprets the dream. And the question is, does God still give us dreams that we may not understand, but that someone else may? To whom should we turn if we do not understand our dreams? Well, I guess the first point we should emphasize is make sure God gave you the dream. Um, <laughs> That's <laughs> guess, right. And the question is, how do you know that God gave you the dream? Um, some of us eat late, then, then we have a dream. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, no, it ain't God. <laughs> I'm just saying, it ain't God. No, it ain't God. Um, but does is, can God do that? The Bible does say in the last days we will dream dreams uh, and we will have visions. Um, we believe that that has been especially identified in the work of Ellen White, where she mm -hmm. received many dreams and um, the interpretation as well. Um, I, 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 I want to suggest that the reason Daniel 2 describes this story as it does is this. Again, remember, God is in control. Mm -hmm. Why would Nebuchadnezzar want to remember a tree? What? What? Why? It and bothered him. You no. Know, yeah. And why did it bother him? Mm, because if I dream something I don't remember, whatever. Right. But you see, it was God who gave him the dream. It was God who caused him to be disturbed and want to know this dream. Mm -hmm. And then it was God, Daniel, who answered, who answered it. God, the God of heaven, revealed the dream. So the point is that dream was for a specific purpose. It outlined the flow of history from the time of Nebuchadnezzar right down until the end of time. Um, so we know that there was a specific purpose for that dream. Can God do the same today again? Yes, he can. But I guess the important thing is to ensure that it is really God who is giving us that dream. And I believe if he does, he will give the interpretation if we need it. Uh, or you may provide someone as he did in the case of Neb Daniel for Nebuchadnezzar. But um, yeah, make sure God is giving you the dream, you know, yeah. The other question, to whom should we turn to if we do not understand our dreams? You know, I, I was thinking along these lines and I've had several people throughout the years say something to me along the lines of, I had this dream. And I was told, I, I've told a couple people my dream and they told me to go and have it analyzed by a psychic. Oh, and so, so they go and they have it analyzed. And, and, you know, I did do that. And they said that this dream will mean this, this will happen. And, and then, you know what happened? All those things did happen. So then psychics do have powers or do, or, or, or do, or do, do psychics talk to God? Good question. Well, the Bible clearly reveals that we should not go to, um any of these individuals and it's amazing that in the story the wise men magician and astrologers those who study the stars and claim that they can read into the future whatever they were not able to even do what the king desired and That's even right. later on in the book when the king revealed a dream they couldn't interpret it the point is these folks who claim that they can read the future they are a fraud Think about it. The last time the jack, the lottery jackpot was how many millions? Why is it that none of these psychics can ever win the lottery? <laughs> they know the future. True. You know, but why? No, they're a fraud. I'm sorry. And besides, they don't go to God. They are dealing with, in many respects, demons 
and spirits that are not of God. So we don't go to them. And that's the beauty about the, the chapter. It shows that the wise men or supposedly wise men were unwise because their strategies and their means were They're not of God. Them. But when mm -hmm. Daniel went to God, and that's what I'm saying, if God gives it to you, go to God. He can reveal it to us. Amen. Amen. We come now to Daniel 3.25 and Daniel 3.28, and we're talking about um, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fire. So Daniel 3.25 reads, he said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Daniel 3.28 goes on to state, then Nebuchadnezzar said, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any God except their own God. So the question now is, who was the fourth man in the furnace? Jesus himself, because it says it looks like a son of the gods, or an angel? Um, okay, well, I'm looking at the, the word angel here, and the Hebrew actually suggests that this can also mean a messenger. Because in the Bible, an angel typically is a messenger. But we believe it is Jesus who stood in the fire with them. So Nebuchadnezzar, of course, doesn't have an accurate knowledge of the true God. So he's expressing himself as he knows how. So when he says the fourth man looks like the son of the gods, um, yeah, he, he may not fully understand what is going on there, but he has a sense that this clearly is a divine presence mm -hmm. because who throws people in fire and um, they don't get burnt? Mm -hmm. And then you see someone appear with them and... Yeah, it and must be God. Around. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And we know that it was it was Jesus Himself who appeared there with um, the 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 um, the three Hebrew boys. So when it says the sons of the gods, that is also referring to a divine being, a divine mm -hmm. being. And yeah, it wasn't a human being because it wasn't someone who was outside who walked in uh, among from among the people who were there. This man mm -hmm. appeared. So it had to be a divine being. And um, we believe that that being is Jesus Christ in what we call his pre-incarnate state. So there are numerous appearances of Jesus prior to him coming to earth as the Christ. And this, we believe, is one of them. You know, one question I have wondered about is, you know how it says in the Bible that when the soldiers threw in the three men, that even they they were singed and died from the heat of the furnace. So mm -hmm. then how is it then that the three men, even standing close, even to be thrown in, how is it that they could not, before, before being thrown in, they're being held, they're being thrown in, the people who threw them in are now dying and of heat and everything. Why is it that they, upon right the second before they were thrown in, were not touched, we're not hurt. There were, it seems to me as if, and maybe I'm reaching, but I'm thinking about it, that they were already protected before they jumped into the furnace. Yeah, you're not reaching. So, I think, I think again, you, you, you've gotten 
You, you, that was flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, indeed. <laughs> because think about it. What would prevent them from being burnt when the soldiers were being destroyed? It was some serious heat. Mm -hmm. some serious heat. So the presence of God was with them even before they entered the furnace. So therefore, if the presence of God was with them and covering them, then God allowed them to be thrown into the furnace so that an illustration could be made so there that something go. can be seen. Sorry, I was just, yep. I've, been, I've been wanting to throw that in for in the studies and think, oh, that's a good sermon. I'll make that. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You should preach it one. <laughs> I should, I should try. All right. Daniel 5, 11 um, states, and this is our last question. Daniel 5, 11 states, there is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. Was Daniel a prophet or a magician or an astrologer? <laughs> well, um being appointed over that group doesn't mean that he was any of them a magician or an astrologer we doubt that um what we do know is that daniel was a prophet he received many prophetic dreams and vision um we don't know that he did anything magical or anything of that nature now what we have to understand again is remember he was a captive in babylon and as a captive in babylon um because of I think God positioned him to be where he was, to influence and impact the kingdom of Babylon for his purpose. That is God's purpose. Now, I don't believe Daniel participated in any astrology or um, um, anything of that nature. And the reason I don't believe that is, if he wasn't going to even defile himself with food, then why would he go to the other extreme to practice anything That's of right. that nature, which would um, require, um, you know, even communication with the dead or reading into whatever other things. No, no. So we don't believe he did that, but he was a civil servant that occupied a prominent role. And I believe he was, that must have been a task because mm. you are dealing, you're in a foreign land, asked mm -hmm. to serve, but you have to maintain your, your religion. And we know mm -hmm. that in many respects, the Jews have the privilege to do that um, while there. So, and that is why, for example, in chapter six, they made a, a decree that no one should pray to any other God, but um, Darius. Why? Mm -hmm. Because they knew that Daniel, and the Bible says, as his practice was, or as he did a four time. So mm -hmm. he clearly held true to his Jewish beliefs, his religious beliefs, and that was evident throughout his life, even though he was in a prominent position in the kingdom of Babylon. So no, he was not an astrologer. No, he was not a magician, but he was a civil servant who was very determined to ensure that he remained true to God, his God, and the religion that God had given to him. That's amazing. And you, you see why Daniel was picked. That takes a lot of fortitude 
Yeah. That takes a lot of fortitude to, you know, to be taken as a slave originally, to be assimilated, attempted to be brainwashed, and then still given position, but still knowing that you're maintaining your own beliefs, just, that's amazing. That's an amazing journey, and that's why he was called to do it. Indeed. Excellent. Thank you, all of you, for joining us tonight. We want to invite our viewers to read for next week, Daniel 6 to Amos 4. And think of any questions that might be on your heart or you might be curious about. Text these questions to 954-388-8780. And we just want to encourage you to read daily, not just at once, because sometimes when you take it all into one huge gulp, it makes it a little harder to bite off and chew. So read it daily. Let the word just um, sink within you. And Pastor Marsh, we are going to be covering, as we said, Daniel 6 to Amos 4. Can you just give us a brief explanation of what's coming up? Well, Daniel 6 is the last part of the first section, which is a narrative section. And then um, 7 through 12 outlines some beautiful prophecies. So it starts with the um, prophecy of those different um, beasts. And then you have the same, a similar prophecy in chapter 8, which talks about the beasts again. Chapter 9, a beautiful prayer. Chapter 10, about um, the Michael contending with the, the um, one who, who was trying to prevent um, Gabriel from ministering to the Prince of Persia. Um, chapter 11, this is about the northern, north, the king of the north and the south. And chapter 12, about the ultimate victory that God is going to wrought for his people. Amos is also a very beautiful book. Um, that talks about his ministry and some prophecies that he had regarding um, God's people. But I would encourage you to read it. You will be definitely blessed by it. Yes, please, please read it. Um, again, text your questions to 954-388-8780. Please also sus- subscribe to Plantation SDA Church's YouTube so that you can automatically be notified of our future episodes and any other live stream events. Pastor Marsh, thank you so much for taking us through Ezekiel 37 all the way through Daniel 6. I have enjoyed this session with you. And could you please pray us out? My pleasure. Let's pray together. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for the time we've spent discussing your word. Please apply these truths to our lives. May we never forget that you're in control and that if we comply with your will, we will reap rewards here and now, but especially in the year after. Bless this program in a very special way. And as we continue to uh, study your word and dive deeper, may lives be changed for your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us on Bible Unmasked. Plantation SDA Church presents The Bible Unmasked. Read your Bible daily and join us every Sunday at 7.30pm for our weekly discussion. From Genesis all the way through to Revelation. Let's read the entire Bible in 2021 with The Bible Unmasked.